We come this evening in our consideration of the Epistle to the Romans to uh, verses 5 and 6 in the 6th chapter. The 6th chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans, verses 5 and 6. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now we are engaged at this moment in this argument, you remember, that the apostle is working out in these verses. He's uh, dealing with this objection that is brought to his preaching of justification by faith, namely, that it seems to suggest that uh, we should therefore continue in sin that grace may abound. That, he says, is impossible because uh, we died to sin. And how can we who died to sin live any longer therein? But he's not content merely with laying down that great proposition. He now uh, goes on to show uh, why that is true and how that came to pass. And it is because, he says, we have been baptized into Christ. We have been joined to him. And uh, the result of that is that what has happened to him has happened to us. And, and you remember, we've seen how he works it out. Uh, as many of us, he says, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. We were also, in the same way, baptized into his burial. In the same way, we are baptized into his resurrection. Now, that's the, what he's been working out in verses 3 and 4. And he ended on that note, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the, the glory, the glorious power of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now that's the point at which he has been wanting to arrive. This suggestion about continuing in sin is quite monstrous. We've not only died to sin, but we are also positively in a new life in a new realm. We've not only been baptized into the death of Christ, we've been baptized also into his resurrection. We, as he was raised up by the glorious power of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life, in this new life. Now that's the point at which we've arrived, and so we can look at verse 5. Now verse 5, in a sense, is a, a repetition and a summary of what he's already been saying in those two verses, three and four. But it uh, also goes a little beyond that. It isn't mere repetition. It doesn't stop at being a summary. For if, he says, we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, the Apostle takes the trouble to make this statement, which, as I say, is, uh, in a sense, a repetition of what he's already been saying, because he's anxious to emphasize that last statement in verse 4, 
which is again, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. That's the point he wants to get over, that we are walking in this newness of life. So again, to demonstrate it, he says, for if, you see, we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, this, therefore, is a verse which can be regarded in many senses as a, as a pivotal statement. Having uh, worked the process, the thing out in detail and from step to step, here, he says, is the big thing. So he states it now as a whole. And it's a very important verse, therefore, for us to grasp. You notice that it's got two sections in it. It consists of two halves. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also, number two, in the likeness of his resurrection. And from the strict standpoint of mechanics, let's observe this. He expounds the first half of this fifth verse in verses six and seven. He expounds the second half in verses eight, nine, and ten. It's a very closely woven uh, argument, this. The texture is fine. The apostle is handling a, a tremendous theme, and it is important we should try to keep clear the exact me mechanics of the way in which he's doing it. So I trust we're all clear about this now. He'd laid down proposition in verse 2. He establishes it, as it were, in 3 and 4. He now then states it in a slightly different way in verse 5, and then he'll work it out again in detail, in still greater detail, in verses 6 and 7, and then 8, 9, and 10 for the second portion. Now, the big thing still to hold in our minds is this, is that what matters above everything else is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are baptized into him, and it is because we are thus united with him by this baptism that these things are true of us. And let us never forget that the whole point of saying it all is to answer that false objection which is mentioned in verse 1. Very well. Now then, let's look at verse 5. For if, he says. Now let nobody be led astray by the word if. It doesn't mean there's any doubt at all. It doesn't mean that there's any query about it. It means this. It really means since. Since we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. You see, it's, it's a common form of arguing. If, if you agree that that is true, well then, this must also be true. That's what it means. It means since, rather than what we sometimes mean when we use if as if to raise a doubt. Since it is a fact that we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, well then it must be a fact also that we have been planted together in the likeness of his resurrection also. Now, you take this word planted. I referred to it hurriedly about a fortnight ago. It's a word that means growing together. Growing together in such an intimate way that it means an essential union. That's the meaning of the term planted. Union by growth. A joint growth becoming one. United together. It expresses, therefore, a very, very definite and a very real union. 
then note in brackets that that is in no sense a figure of baptism. We dealt with that a fortnight tonight, as I say. But here it is. The thing he's anxious for us to get hold of is that we are thus united as a branch is in the vine. It's that unity in growth and in everything else, planted together. Once more, he's emphasizing the intimate nature of the union of the believer with his Lord. Then we must just look for a moment at the word likeness. We have been planted together, he says, in the likeness of his death. Why that? Well, for this reason. Our death and resurrection is not identical with the Lord's. Everything that happened to him, of course, was unique because he was who he was, because he is the eternal Son of God. Everything that happened to him, therefore, has a speciality and a uniqueness about it that can never be true of us. So he uses the term likeness just to help us to keep that distinction in our minds. Our death and our resurrection are in the likeness of his, but they're not identical with his. We shall never know the suffering he knew. We shall never know many other things which he knew. Here's a, a word perhaps which will help you to grasp the meaning. We are not told that our Lord came into this world in sinful flesh, but we are told that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, there is, you see the distinction there. So it means this that what has happened to him, literally and actually, happens to us spiritually. There is a spiritual sense in which it is true to say that we have died with him. We didn't die with him literally, physically. We shall never know the agony that he knew in his death. No, but what is important is this, that because of our spiritual relationship to him, the effects and consequences of his actual literal death become ours and are passed on to us. In other words, go back to Adam. We were not literally in Adam when he sinned, yet spiritually we were in Adam when he sinned. It's the same parallel still. But so it's a very accurate term, this, in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. What happened to him actually, physically, happens to us spiritually. We have all the benefits and the results of that death and resurrection. So he calls it being planted in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. There's no real difficulty about it, but lest somebody may wonder why he used the term likeness, that is the explanation. Then the other expression I must take up is this one, because people have sometimes been misled by it. He says, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, this expression, shall be, has led some people to think that this refers only to our future literal bodily resurrection. Now, it's important that we should see that it doesn't mean that only. As I'm going to show you, I believe it includes that. But if you say that it only means that, you are really saying something that makes the whole argument of, of the Apostle at this point quite useless. Because the Apostle is here concerned to show why we can never continue in sin that grace may abound. Well, now that refers to something 
which happens to us in this life and in this world. He's not arguing there about what we're going to be like after we have risen from the dead in a literal sense. He's concerned about the life we live as Christian believers in this world, in the here and now. And he has said at the end of verse 4 that we should walk in newness of life. Where? In the state of glorification? No. Here, while we're still left in this world. Now then, in exactly the same way, this shall be refers also to this present life. What he is concerned about is this. You see, he says, shall be for this reason only. It is a future only from the standpoint of our being dead with him and buried with him. It's something that follows. It is future from death. It's not future in this sense that it means the life in the world to come. Now, verse 11, of course, makes this absolutely certain. This is not even a matter of opinion, it seems to me. And it's because people take a verse on its own and forget the context that they can ever go astray about this. The apostle there puts it like this. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin now, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When? Well, now. We are to reckon ourselves in the here and now to be dead to sin and alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he talks about our having been planted together in the likeness of his death and says we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, he says this, a man who dies with him shall also rise with him. It's a continuous action. You can't take part, he says, in the death only, because you're in him. You take part in all he's done, death and life. As he died and rose, so you die and rise. So the shall be is not a simple future, which has reference only to that beyond this life. Very well, then, what does he mean by the likeness of his resurrection? He means this. He means this newness of life to which is referred at the end of chapter 4. We have been raised with Christ into a new life. We are no longer in that old life in the, under the dominion and the tyranny of sin. No, no. We've been taken right out of it. We died out of it. We've risen out of it. We are in this new life in this world, even here and now. Not only does that uh, get mentioned in verse 4, but listen again to verse 10. For in that he, Christ, died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And if he liveth and liveth unto God, we do also. That's the argument. And that is, I say, in the here and now. And hence the appeal and the exhortation in verse 11, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, even in the here and now. Now, I'm emphasizing that for this reason. You remember that I uh, had occasion, I think still a, a fortnight or so ago, or three weeks ago perhaps, uh, to criticize uh, the great Robert Holden in his interpretation of that statement in verse 2, which says that we died to sin. And Holden, you remember, says that that means that we died to the guilt of sin. 
And he stops at that. And I rejected that because I said it doesn't mean merely that we die to the guilt of sin, but we die to the reign of sin altogether. Now here's absolute proof of that. We are not left in the grave. We have risen to newness of life and we are to walk in newness of life. Now this is what the apostle is concerned about. Not only are we dead to the guilt of sin, we are dealt to the whole reign and realm of sin. That's the thing he's emphasizing. And here's the final proof of it. We are so out of its territory that we are in this new territory. We are living in this new life with Christ because we have been raised with him. And that, I say, is the final proof of the inadequacy of Holden's interpretation of, of verse 2. In other words, what he's saying once more is that our relationship to sin has been entirely changed even as our Lord's relationship was entirely changed when he rose again from the dead. You remember last Friday I emphasized this, that he had come into the realm and territory of sin for the time being in order to save us. But the moment he was dead and buried and rose again, he finished with it. As he says there in verse 10, in that he died unto sin, he died unto sin once. And once and forever. He's finished with it. So have we. That's the whole argument. But I think this statement even goes further. I believe that it does look forward also to the future. Because our salvation includes the resurrection of the body and the glorification of the body. For the time being, we are only in the likeness of Christ's resurrection, spiritually. But there is a day coming when we shall be also glorified even in our bodies, even as he is. That is what the apostle says, you remember, in Philippians 3.20. We look for the Savior, he says, the coming of the Savior, who shall change this our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the mighty working of his power, whereby he is able to subdue even all things unto himself. I believe, therefore, that it includes that. And what he's saying is this. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We are already this essentially spiritually, but the day is coming when we shall be so in every respect. We shall be without spot or wrinkle, faultless and blameless. We shall be perfect and glorified. We shall stand before him and see him as he is and be like him. I think it includes even that, because, again, the great thing he's concerned about here is to bring out the triumph of grace, its complete triumph. There will be nothing left. All the work will have been completed, and our redemption shall be absolutely perfect and entire. Well, now then, what the apostle is here emphasizing, of course, is the certainty of all this. We shall be also. You see, it follows, doesn't it, if we are in Christ. Well, then we must of necessity share in all that has resulted from his action. Because we have been baptized into him, planted into him, joined in this intimate manner with him. 
it follows of necessity that if we have died with him as we have, we shall also in this full and final sense be raised with him. Now you notice the apostle says exactly the same thing there in that second epistle of Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11 which we read at the beginning. He said it is a faithful saying if we have died with him we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him we shall also reign with him. Did you notice it? It's exactly the same argument. If we are in Christ well this is absolutely certain. Though you're in the flesh at the moment and are conscious of weakness and frailty and sin and failure, may be persecuted and buffeted and tried and tempted. It's all right, says the apostle. The Lord knoweth them that are his. The foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And they are guaranteed this. Nothing can stop it. It is certain. Whatever we may be doing now, we are suffering with him very well. It's equally certain that we shall reign with him and be in glory with him. It's a faithful saying this. Let there be no doubt or hesitation about believing it and living upon it. It is one of those absolute certainties. Here's a young man, you see, like Timothy, who was depressed and unhappy, having problems and difficulties and trials and persecutions. Look here, Timothy, says Paul to him. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And anybody who is in him is raised already spiritually and will finally be raised even in his body and in every other respect. Remember that. Hold on to that. And then he says you'll not be overcome by the things that are happening to you. But you will know how to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Same thing, same argument exactly, only that he puts it there to Timothy in a little more pastoral manner than he does in this sixth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. In other words, I say once more, and I'm repeating as the apostle goes on repeating it, because we're all so slow to grasp it. The whole point is this, he says. We are under the reign of grace. We are under the powerful reign of grace. And it's so powerful that sin has been defeated, that devil and hell have been defeated. Christ is victorious. We see not yet all things put under men, but we see Jesus. Well, look at him. Keep looking at him. And because you're in him, you're with him spiritually, you'll be with him entirely. That's the argument. And, of course, in the light of this, he says... Is there anything more monstrous and ridiculous than to suggest that therefore all this means that we can continue in sin? That grace may abound? He says the thing is idiotic. Everything that's happened in Jesus Christ was designed to take us out of that realm of sin and to put us into this new realm. And so he ridicules this at first plausible criticism that had been brought against his teaching of justification by faith only and the reign of grace. We died with him in order to what? Well, that we might rise with him. And risen with him, we walk in newness of life. As he has finished with that, so have we. We've finished with it once and forever. Well, now then, 
The Apostle now is concerned that having laid down this great statement in its two halves, that we should grasp it in its details, so he proceeds to work it out for us. You remember that I said that he takes the first half, which is that we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, and he works that out in verses 6 and 7. Let's follow him. Here's verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Let me give you a better translation. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's what Paul wrote. Was crucified. Not is, but was. It's happened in the past. It's an aorist. It's complete. It's happened. We are not being crucified. We have the old man was crucified with him. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be disannulled or might be rendered void or ineffective, that henceforth we should not be slaves of sin. Very well, let's take it as he's put it. The first thing we have to look at is this expression, knowing this. What does he mean here? Why does he, he put it in that form? Well, it's to again remind us that this is something which we should all know. Something uh, with which we should be perfectly familiar, something uh, concerning which we should have an absolute certainty. That's what he means. That's his expression. He's used a, a strong term. I'm again amazed somewhat that the great Charles Hodge says that this is experimental knowledge. I think you'll find my whole exposition will be to say that it's not experimental. And that to take it experimental is to lead to utter confusion. It's not experimental knowledge. But it is the knowledge of faith. It is the knowledge which is revealed in the scripture and of which faith is certain. He's emphasizing the certainty of it. But it isn't an experimental certainty. It is the certainty of faith. It is the full assurance of faith. Now, he's emphasizing, I say, that we should all know this. And therefore, I make no apology, my friends, for stopping for a moment to ask you a simple question. Do you know this? Do you always live in the light of this knowledge? Is this something of which you are absolutely certain? It's important I should press the question, isn't it? We are familiar with this epistle to the Romans. Had we realized that this is what it was saying? And that the apostle writes to these Romans uh, whom he's never yet met, uh, saying, knowing this, this is something that every Christian should know. This is an essential, vital part of the very beginning of our true salvation. Knowing this, well, what is it we know? That our old man was crucified together with him. Crucified together with him. But here we come to this important term, the old man. What's it mean? I suppose there is no term that so frequently troubles Christian people as the term the old man. Everybody who is concerned about sanctification is concerned about this expression, the old man. 
There are people who have spent their lives in trying to kill their old men, to get rid of the old men. It was the thing that took people into cells and caves and the tops of the mountains that made them become anchorites. It's the whole meaning of monasticism. It's the great effort to get rid of the old men. That's the whole meaning of monasticism in every shape and form and all mutilations of the flesh, scarifications of the flesh and all that. It's all an attempt to get rid of this old man. What is this old man? It's because I say that there is confusion as to the interpretation of this term that all that kind of Christianity and that view of the Christian life has ever crept in. Well, what does it mean? Well, then I say, first of all, it doesn't mean the carnal nature and all its propensities. It doesn't mean that. He's not saying that our carnal nature and all its propensities was crucified together with Christ. Neither does it mean our moral being previous to our rebirth. Neither does it mean the flesh with its affections and lusts. Now, why am I so concerned with these negatives? Well, because, as I want to show you, if you identify the old men with any one of those, well, then you will, of necessity, be in hopeless confusion, because there are other scriptures which we've got to consider. What then does he mean by old men? Well, it doesn't mean either simply old in the sense that I am now something different, well, what does it mean? Well, it seems to me to be so obvious and plain if we take the whole connection together, starting in chapter 5, verse 12. The old man is the man that I used to be in Adam. How can it mean anything else here? It's been the whole context since chapter 5, verse 12. I was a man in Adam. I am now a man in Christ. What's the old man? Well, it's that man that I was, and which I no longer am. We have seen so abundantly that that old man that I was in Christ is the one that was crucified with Christ. He came in and took hold of that man, made it part of himself, in order that he might do away with it and take it out of me. I have ceased to be the man that I was in Adam. I am no longer in Adam as a Christian. I am in Christ. So the old man that I can look back upon is that man that I was there. It's my old humanity. It isn't my carnal sinful nature. That is still here. But the old man is gone. He's been crucified. Ah, but says someone, crucifixion is a very slow process. It takes a very long time. So what he's saying is really that the old man is undergoing this process of crucifixion. Paul didn't say that. Paul used the aorist. He said it has happened to him, and it has happened to him once and forever. And he'll emphasize it in verse 10. In that he died, he died unto sin once. It isn't a process. Crucifixion has ended it. Christ doesn't go on dying. He died, he was crucified, and he died once and for all. And the crucifixion here points to the death that he accomplished. And I died with him. That old man died. My Adamic nature. The man that I was by my natural birth 
that meant that was joined and united to Adam. He, that's the old man, was crucified together with Christ. Now, I say it's important we should be clear about this. Because of other statements which the apostle makes, such as this, in Ephesians 4, verses 24, 25, and verses 23, well, indeed, I must go even back to 22, verses 22 to 24. He says that he put off concerning the former conversation. The old men, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that he put on the new men, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then you can read something similar in Colossians 3, third chapter, verses 9 and 10. Lie not one to another, seeing that he have put off the old men with his deeds, and have put on the new men, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now then, and indeed there is one more, Galatians 5.24, which reads like this. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Those verses seem surely to teach this quite plainly. I myself am commended to put off the old nature. It is stated specifically there in Galatians 5.24, they that are Christ's, they have crucified. It hasn't been done for them. They themselves have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. But here we are told that the old man has not crucified himself, but that he was crucified. He was crucified with, together with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the only way you can reconcile these statements is to say this, as I've already been trying to say it, that the old man is my old man that I was in Christ, my old humanity. That man that was born under the law, born in sin, born under condemnation, that sinned with Adam and therefore reaps all the consequences of Adam's sin. That man who is under the wrath of God and under the condemnation of God. That man died with Christ, was crucified with him. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, because I'm no longer that man. I am the new man in Christ Jesus. That old nature, that old man of mine, not my old nature, my old man, my old humanity, was crucified and died there. I am a new man in a new humanity. He's the firstborn amongst many brethren. He's the head of a new race. And I'm in this new race. And if you realize that that is what the old man means, you then understand that when he says, put off the old man, he means this, put off the characteristics of the life of that old man. It can't mean anything else. I cannot be told to put off something that has already been crucified. No, 
but he's got to use terms and it's a difficult matter to convey. What he's saying is this, don't go on, don't go on living as if you still were that old man because that old man has died. Don't go on living as if you were still there. Put that off. That's what he means by putting off the old men and putting on the new men. Indeed, those who attend here Sunday mornings will remember that when we were expounding that very passage uh, back last May and June, I put it like this, that there in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, the apostle was saying this, Be what you are. You are no longer the old man, well, don't live like an old man. You are a new man, well, live like the new man. Be what you are. I use this illustration. You see a man uh, grown to full age and maturity. You see him uh, almost in tears. He's afraid of somebody or afraid of something. And what you say to him? You say, don't be a baby. Why do you say to him, don't be a baby? Well, it's because he isn't a baby. You say to him, be a man because you are a man. Don't be a baby, you say. Because you're not a baby. You've ceased to be a baby. You're now a man, so be a man. Be what you are. And don't be something that you're not. There you have the reconciliation of the two things. And you notice that in Galatians 5.24, he says quite clearly that it is you and I that have to crucify the flesh with the affections and lusts. That has not been crucified for us. It's the old men that's been crucified. And the old men means that old humanity, that man that I was in Adam. Now I again have to appeal to you to do this. Hold on to the objective character of this statement. It is not experimental. That's coming later. This is not experimental at all. This is objective. He's here putting it in a doctrinal form so that on the basis of that he'll be able to make his appeal when he comes to verse 11, 12, 13, and then all the way from 15 to the end of the chapter. We must hold on to the objective character of this. The old man is the man that I was in Adam, and that is the man that has died once and forever. Now then, this is to me one of the most comforting and assuring and glorious aspects of our faith. We are never called upon to crucify our old man. And why? Well, because it's already happened. The old man was crucified. In Christ on the cross. Nowhere does the scripture call upon you to crucify your old man. Nowhere does the scripture tell you to get rid of your old man for the obvious reason that he's already gone. And you're just allowing the devil to fool you and to delude you. What you and I are called upon to do is not to go on living as if he were still there, which is a very different thing. He is not there. Now, the only way to stop living as if he were still there is to realize that he isn't there. Are you following that? That is the New Testament method of sanctification. The whole trouble with us, says the New Testament, is that we don't realize who and what we are. We still go on thinking we're the old men, and we're trying to do things to the old men. It's been done. The old man was crucified with Christ. He's non-existent. He's not there. 
The man that you were in Adam, if you're a Christian, has gone out of being. He's out of existence. He has no reality at all. You are in Christ. Do you know, my friends, if, you, if we can only see this as we should, we begin really to live as Christians in this world. We'd all hold up our heads. We'd be able to defy sin and Satan. We'd rejoice in Christ Jesus if we only saw it. And yet Paul says we ought all to know this, knowing this. Now let us never again try to get rid of the old man. He's gone. This is something I say that we are to believe and to receive by faith. This isn't something you experience. This is something you believe. And it is only as you believe it that your experience will be affected. Let me use an, an analogy and an illustration. With regard to this truth, we are called upon once more to do what the father of the faith did, Abraham. You remember how we are told all about it there in the fourth chapter where he puts it like this. Therefore it is by faith that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. What's he mean? He means this. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, even when he considered his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he didn't stagger at the promise of God through unbelief, but was made strong by faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And that is what you and I have got to do. God made this statement to Abram, and Abram didn't say, now look here, I'm nearly a hundred years old, and Sarah's over ninety, and the thing's therefore impossible. No, he didn't stagger. He believed it. He saw all the difficulties. He didn't feel anything at all. He had nothing experimental. There was Abram standing under the stars, as, 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 as the apostle reminds us there. He was standing there with God under the stars, and God said, look at them, can you count them? So shall thy seed be. Can you count this sand on the seashore? So shall thy seed be. To a man aged 99 with a wife of over 90. Abram felt nothing at all. How could he? There was nothing experimental about it. It was just a statement made by God. This is what's going to happen. I am telling you. And Abram on the bare word of God. Believed. And you and I have to do the same. I wouldn't know that I was in Adam if God didn't tell me in his word. I wouldn't know that I have been baptized into Christ unless he told me. This is an action of the Holy Spirit, which is non-experimental. The Holy Spirit baptizes me into Christ. It isn't the baptism of the Spirit, it's the baptism by the Spirit. He baptizes me into union with Christ. I know that because I find it in this word. And I know that I have died to sin. Because the word tells me. 
It's not experimental at this stage at all. It's the bare statement of God. And I must believe it as Abram believed that word. I may feel that I'm a sinner, that sin is in me. All right, perfectly true. But on the bare word of God, I believe this. That I died with Christ. I am no longer in Adam. There is therefore no condemnation to me. Because I am in Christ. Whatever my feelings may be. Whatever the devil may suggest to me as he does. Whatever the facts that may be flying in the face of the statement. Faith sees the promise and holds on to it and believes it. And as it does so, it is given experiences. Not this, you can't experience this. You believe this, then you will have other proofs that it is true. But at this stage, we regard the whole thing objectively. And we take it on the bare word of God. That's what the apostle is concerned about here. That if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Let hell say no. Let everything within you and without say no. Doesn't matter. Stand on the foundation of God. Plant your feet on this great and glorious promise. It is true. This is the whole essence of the faith position. So I'm not taking an experience by faith. I am taking and believing by faith what God tells me he has done. That he has put me into Christ. And because I'm in Christ, I've died with him. I've risen with him. I am walking in newness of life with him. Now then, there in that last phrase you get a hint at experience. I'm aware of that, that I am walking in a new life. I can give you proofs of new life within me. But at this point, that isn't the thing. The thing that I must hold on to is that I have been put into Christ. And that therefore, these things are true of me. And you see, it is because of this that my salvation is so sure. It is because God himself by the Spirit has put me into Christ. That nothing can ever take me out of Christ. And my future, eternal future, my final glorification is guaranteed and certain and sure. Whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified them he hath also glorified. Very well. We must leave it at that for this evening. And now we can go on and work out what the apostle goes on to show us was the object in all this. And the whole time he is answering the false objection which he has mentioned in verse 1. I do trust that we are keeping the big argument in our minds. He is showing the utter nonsensical character of this suggestion that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. Why, he says, the whole object of all that Christ has done in his grace is to deliver us finally and completely out of that, into this new life, which is his own life, which is indeed the life of God. Let us pray. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. 
You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.